0: Hey everyone, thanks for listening to this episode of Cocktails of Crime and Fashion. I wanted to give you a quick disclaimer. This episode was recorded over Zoom and there were some audio issues, but our conversation with our awesome guests was so good that we wanted to release it as is. Enjoy!
1: On April 20th, 1945, Adolf Hitler turned 56 years old. It was not a happy birthday. His German war machine had been decimated. Nazi troops were in full retreat. The Allies were closing in from the west, only 62 miles from Berlin. The Soviet Red Army was marching from the east and were already on the outskirts of the German capital. On April 22nd, Hitler suffered a nervous breakdown when he discovered that his commanders had failed to obey his orders to counterattack. For the first time, he seemed to recognize that the die was cast. There would be no last-minute miracles, no supernatural occult intervention. The war was lost. Hitler announced that he would stay in Berlin until the end. And shoot himself before he could be captured. He asked his doctor, Werner Hess, about the most reliable method of suicide. Hess suggested the pistol and poison method, a dose of cyanide combined with a gunshot to the head. One of Hitler's top lieutenants, Hermann Goering, learned of these plans he sent a telegram asking permission to take over the leadership of the Reich. Hitler's right-hand man, Martin Bormann, convinced Hitler that Göring was threatening a coup. Hitler fired Göring and ordered his arrest. Meanwhile, the military situation continued to deteriorate. By April 27th, the Soviets were in Berlin and preparing to storm the Chancellery. Heinrich Himmler reportedly offered to surrender to the Americans and British, avoiding the Soviets. Hitler ordered his arrest and had his aide shot. Shortly after midnight on April 29th, Hitler married his long-term companion, Eva Braun, in the map room of the bunker. There was a modest wedding breakfast, and Hitler ordered his secretary to accompany him to another room, where he dictated his last will and testament, naming Admiral Karl Donitz as head of state and Joseph Goebbels as chancellor. At 4 a.m., he and his bride went to bed. Later that afternoon, Hitler received word that his ally, Italian dictator Benito Mussolini, and his mistress had been executed in Italy. Their bodies were strung up by their heels from a lamppost and later cut down and left in a gutter as angry crowds walked by and spat upon them. This was the final straw. Hitler determined that he would not become such a spectacle in death. He wanted to test the cyanide to make sure it would work, so he ordered Dr. Hess to give a cyanide capsule to his dog, Blondie. She died instantly. At 1 p.m. the next day, April 30th, 1945, Hitler, his wife, his secretary, and his cook had lunch. The people in the bunker formed a line, and Hitler and Braun walked by them, saying goodbye to each. At 2.30, Hitler and Braun went into the study and shut the door. His adjutant stood guard outside. After some time, Hitler's valet opened the door. And immediately smelled the odor of burning almonds. Hitler and Braun were on the sofa. They were both dead. Braun had no visible wounds. Hitler was reclined on the sofa, leaning against the arm, blood dripping from his right temple. Hitler's adjutant and other people in the bunker swore that no one had access to the study after Hitler and Braun went in. Other people came by and also. Viewed the body. Hitler's will specified what should happen next. His body was rolled up in a rug and carried up the stairs and outside to the garden behind the chancellery. Gas was poured over the bodies, and after some difficulty, the fire caught. The bodies burned while the witnesses raised their arm in a final Nazi salute to their Fuhrer. By this time, the garden was under fire from Soviet artillery. The bodies didn't completely burn, so aides finally collected the charred remains, put them in a bomb crater, and covered them with dirt. The next day, Donitz announced Hitler's death, proclaiming him a hero who had died defending the fatherland. Joseph Stalin heard this. He was reluctant to believe that Hitler was dead, so he ordered his troops to find the corpse. On May 4th, The Soviets recovered the partially burned remains, including dental bridges, later compared with dental records from Hitler and Braun, and they were found to be a match. Their remains, along with that of Blondie and her pup, were transferred to an intelligence unit of the Red Army. The bodies of the dogs, and possibly the bodies of Hitler and Braun, and the Goebbels family were all burned again their remains were crushed and thrown into the river. Thus ends the story of Adolf Hitler. Or does it? Did Hitler and Eva Braun die by their own hands in a bunker in Berlin on April 30th, 1945? Or were they spirited out of Germany, across the Atlantic, to sanctuary in South America? So sit back, enjoy a classic martini, and see if you can sort out. What happened to Hitler?
0: Thank you, Dad. I am so excited to get into this. And I'm extra excited because we have a really awesome guest today who has done very extensive research on this um, theory, I guess, that Hitler did, in fact, survive his, quote-unquote, suicide.
1: So you've already given us a spoiler.
0: You did. (laughs) Whoopsie. Anyway, our guest today is my dad's longtime friend and student of history, Larry Pope. And we are actually on location today at Larry's beautiful home in Wichita, Kansas. And yeah, we're not talking about BTK today because we already did, but this is where BTK was. That's right. All right. Well, uh, before we get into our discussion with with Larry, I wanted to talk about some World War II fashion and the way that World War II influenced fashion at the time. So for women's wear, um, I found this information I found this information from an article called Fashion History, Women's Clothing in the 1940s by Dolores Monet from Bellatory.com. Women's wear at this time was simple due to the rationing of fabrics and other notions from the war. Women's wear took on military elements because of the effect that the war had on clothing. Women had to make do with less in terms of their clothing. And due to nylon and wool being rationed and Japanese silk being banned from the U.S. after the attack on Pearl Harbor, rayon became the most used fabric for women's clothing during the war. And for those who don't know, rayon is a semi-synthetic fabric made from wood pulp and other plant materials. Many European women owned utility jumpsuits made from pure oiled silk to protect from gas. These jumpsuits were easy to put on quickly when the sirens blew. Paris lost its influence over fashion as well, and New York City emerged as a fashion leader. And this was because uh, we couldn't get things from Paris as easily, uh, so we had to find a fashion place here in the U.S., and that was New York City, and it has stuck. Any comments about women's wear?
1: Well, tell us a little bit about what the uh, what the well-dressed uh, woman might have been wearing during World War II with, with all the fabric shortages. Any thoughts on that?
0: Okay, the well-to-do woman, she wore her hair long and curled at the ends for a soft feminine look. It makes me think of A League of Their Own, how how those ladies were wearing. They may not have been well-to-do, but that's the same hairstyle. m were also shortened, probably because there was less fabric. It was all about the legs in the 1940s. That's when that started. Girdles were no more because rubber was needed for the war. So skirts and dresses were often fitted with adjustable waistlines. So we started to be free in the 1940s. Let's see. What else? Pants became a staple. And shoulder pads became popular. So I don't know if all that was with the uh, well-to-do women, but, you know, I wasn't prepared for that question, clearly.
1: Now, I have heard, and Larry, maybe you remember this, that uh, because of the nylon shortage during the war, uh, a lot of women didn't weren't able to find stockings, and they were actually using the modern equivalent of of uh, tanning lotion to to make their legs appear that is they were they were wearing stockings and even taking a ink and drawing like a seam up the back of their
2: legs. Have you ever heard of that?
0: That's interesting. I hadn't heard of that.
2: Nothing would surprise me in that day and time.
0: Well, I also have uh, some stuff about menswear, because Dad always asks me about what the men were wearing. So I was prepared this time.
2: Wants to know about hats, I'm sure.
0: Of course, of course. And I did include some about hats. Well, good. Wartime rationing prevented mainstream men's suits from being fashionable. But zoot suits were worn by inner-city youth as an underground rebellion. Zoot suits had bright colors, baggy legs, and long jackets. They were strongly associated with gangsters at the time. And many men were fighting overseas, and their oversized suits were seen as unpatriotic because they were similar to Zoot suits. Uh, And these oversized suits went against fabric ration regulations. So that's why it was unpatriotic.
2: Can Can I add a musical note?
0: Yes, please.
2: Perhaps you know or don't know that uh, the great Cab Calloway uh, sort of normalized the zoot suit. That was part of his act. Uh, if you see uh, any YouTube of uh, Cab Calloway, you'll likely see him dressed in a zoot suit or something similar to a zoot suit. Always dancing and always smiling. he uh, Cab Calloway was an amazing performer, but he normalized the zoot suit.
0: I did not know that. I'll have to YouTube that.
2: It's interesting.
0: Mm-hmm. Zoot suits were often pinstriped, yellow, green, bright blue, and purple. There were also zoot suit riots, as well. Correct.
2: That is, that is correct.
0: Yes, we'll have to cover those sometime. That's a whole another. That's a whole another thing. Mm-hmm. So, uh, wartime clothing influenced men's fashion by modifying military uniforms into civilian clothes. So trench coats, bomber jackets. Knit undershirts, peacoats, chino pants, and a- aviator glasses all have roots in World War II. Casual wear was introduced for men, specifically Hawaiian shirts. Party. Uh, and the fedora was the most widely worn hat of the time. And that's dad's favorite.
1: I like me a fedora.
0: As far as shoes, Oxfords and two-tone slash wingtips were the most popular shoes at the time. That's all I got for the guys, unless you you two have anything more to add
1: well, believe it or not, neither Larry nor I are are actually old enough to to uh have known what we were what the men would have been wearing during World War II. I knew, I, could, I
2: knew people who were old enough, yes, but I didn I personally but... had no experience
0: Well, Dad, you want to get into the discussion, Tell us about the cocktail and tell everyone what we're sipping on right now as we record
1: well. Macy and I. This, this isn't widely known, but uh, almost every one of our recording sessions, we each are are sipping a a glass of wine, usually a, a drier red, like a like a cab or maybe a malbec. Uh, but today we arrived, and Larry had a surprise for us—something that uh, I have never uh, never just sipped before. Larry, tell us a little bit about this this wonderful nectar that you've placed before us today.
2: Well, I I've just found myself sort of interested in vermouths and sherrys and the the chemistry that goes into them. And a friend of mine, a dear friend of mine, his wife uh, uh, likes Dubonnet, and he gave me a bottle of Dubonnet, which is actually an American. And so I drank it, and it, it's it's pretty sweet. It, it's uh, pretty pretty heavy on the tart side. And uh, so I was in a, one of my favorite stores the other day, and I uh, a shout out to my good friend, Matt Coleman, who turned me on to this. But uh, uh, he said, well, if, you, uh, if, if you're really liking to try this, try this uh, Spanish vermouth called Lastal." And uh, he said, I think you'll really like it. And so I bought a bottle. We had not opened it until we sat down at the table here today. And I will tell you, it is nothing short of wonderful. It's uh, uh, semi-dry it's uh, got a little smoky ambiance to it little caramel on the nose and it's just a wonderful uh, sipping sherry a sipping liqueur and and uh, we're enjoying that it's not vintage like i said it is it, this one is a uh, spanish but uh, it is uh, it's, it's very nice i think
1: I really enjoy, like you said, that that caramel taste just just comes right up front
2: and a uh, nice long finish. Yeah, it bursts out on you. The caramel just bursts out. So
1: thank you for that, Larry. Now the, the cocktail of the day is also thanks to to my my good longtime friend, Larry Pope. He introduced me to a martini probably 20 years ago, maybe. Maybe. And uh so now we, we kind of have this ritual. Every Wednesday, we'll, uh, we'll be sitting somewhere three, you know, two or 300 miles apart, but he'll be sipping a martini at one of his watering holes, and I'll usually be on my deck, and we'll, we'll talk about the ingredients of the martini we're sipping, and uh, it's certainly become one of my favorite traditions, just sipping a nice, uh, nice gin martini. You used to be kind of a vodka guy, as I recall. I was, but once again, you have, you have converted me. Um, <laughs> uh, what, what's your favorite gin to make, uh, to put in a martini or, or do you, uh, are you more eclectic in that regard? No, uh,
2: if I had to pick one, I would say it's probably conventional Bombay London dry as it's, it's a very well-balanced, uh, gin, not heavy in any herbals and not heavy on the tongue. Um, uh, it's uh, not quite as fragrant as the Sapphire version of Bombay, which is good. But actually, the uh, common London Dry is, uh, how do I say it, more highly rated than, uh, than the other. I also like 209. 209 has an interesting history and a local, a little local flavor to it in that uh, standard liquor here in town was owned by a gentleman named Les Rudd. For years and Les moved to Napa and bought a bought a farm out there. And there was a uh, there was a barn on the farm. And when they went out to clear the clear the barn, they found a file cabinet that had a California distillery license number two hundred nine in it that had been issued in the, I don't know early nineteen hundreds, late eighteen hundreds, and it was still valid. And so uh, his group, Les has passed now, but his group uh, developed this uh, absolutely wonderful. Uh, number two hundred nine, and it's generally available anywhere you can. You can pretty much find, at least in this part of the country. But it's it's a it's a nicely balanced gin as well. So there there are there are a number of of uh, good opportunities out there. Let's say.
1: Well, thank you for that, and um, let's let's move on and start to trying to piece together what may have happened uh, at the end of World War II. Now, before we delve into. What may have happened to Hitler? It certainly is well known that a number of of uh, Nazis did escape Germany at the end of the war, and and a number of them ended up in South America. Indeed, and um, Martin Bormann, one of Hitler's uh, one of the early Nazis and and one of Hitler's right hand men, had uh, had a hand in in uh, allowing that to happen, didn't he, Larry? Tell us a little bit about Martin Bormann and
2: his his role, Borman was one of the more interesting characters, and I, I'd even I'd even add several key players to this whole scenario that uh, some of them aren't talked about that much. But uh, uh, certainly Martin Borman was uh, and we'll get into him a little more in a minute. But I would include in the uh, baseline group there that uh, sort of was instrumental in all of this falling into place was uh, Juan Peron. Who at the time had uh, close to the end of the war uh, became dictator in Argentina. He was very pro Nazi, uh, a fascist in, in and of himself. Franco, of course, in Spain. And Franco's rarely mentioned because, uh, but Franco was sort of key to this because uh, you may remember uh, Saturday Night Live in the olden days talking about the death of General Francisco Franco, Generalissimo is still alive, yeah, or still not dead, I think was the term.
1: Right, about uh, just in the middle of the show, someone would call out, this just in, Generalissimo Francisco Franco
2: is still dead. Yeah, yeah it, was, uh, it, was, it was a running gag, but Franco was himself a, a fascist and a, and a dictator, and he allowed traffic through, um, uh, through Spain We'll come to that in a little bit, and and through some of the Spanish territories. The other factor that is often not discussed, and for some time, sometimes good reason, but the Vatican played a role in this as well. While that's not a (laughs) popular thing to say, it is in fact uh, true, uh, in that through the Italians, uh, there was a, a large document Mill that produced all kinds of uh, counterfeit travel papers, uh, passports, all sorts of things. We know for a fact, as you said before, a lot of, a lot of uh, Germans and other other European fascists ended up in South America and we know for a fact that Dr. Joseph Mengele, the angel of death, one of the most evil men, <laughs> probably in the 20th century, merely went to Italy, got on a cruise ship, and sailed to Argentina actually i think he ended up in brazil but um so the access to forged papers was not was not uh uncommon um so th- those are the i i see those as the key players now i would say at the outset that i would give a, a, a real tip of the hat to um gerard williams and uh his co-author, Dunst, uh, Simon Dunstan, who uh, wrote the book uh, Grey Wolf, The Escape of Adolf Hitler, he's done quite a number of podcasts. In fact, the History Channel did a um, Hunting Hitler series that was based on his uh, on his work, although he said in another podcast at a different time that they took some Dramatic license with it that he wasn't particularly fond of. Uh, I'm not sure Gerard's fond of much of anything. And Gerard, if you're listening to this or having to pick it up sometime in the future, I say that with love, my friend, because I admire your work greatly. Uh, but his his book is uh, amazingly well documented, and uh, the work the work that they have done tracking this is, is astounding. He does track the uh, the end of the, the end of the Reich, and how Bormann. In fact, set himself up uh, as a uh, as hopefully the leader of the forthright. We can talk a little bit if you're if you want to about how Bormann moved assets and the things that he did. He was almost a background character. He he, he was known to history as Hitler's secretary. He was far more than that. And by secretary, we don't mean stenographer. He was uh, the the first secretary of the Nazi Party, and consequently had. Uh, a lot of influence, probably more influence than anybody else over Hitler. Hitler was, was interesting in more than one way. He was interesting in a lot of ways, but one of the things Hitler was not was a great administrator. And, um, Gerard points this out in, in the book, but to expand on that a little bit, Hitler was, uh, Hitler preferred to just let the lieutenants fight it out. If something got in the way, he would just let them go at it. And it was no secret that there was no love loss between, uh, let's say, uh, Himmler and uh, Goering and Bormann. Uh, Hitler and and Goering saw Bormann as a huge threat. They were military men. Bormann was a civilian. And uh, so Bormann was the backdrop. He was the one who um, manipulated the assets, if you will.
1: Right, because this did take... um... Take some money to make all this happen. I assumed there had to be payoffs and uh, there had to be assets to, to spirit these people out of the country and and to set them up once they arrived in South America. And, and uh, Borman played a key role in that, didn't he? Moving assets from through, through Swiss banks, possibly. He was the
2: master. Yeah, in Switzerland, actually, we should probably include in that list of key players, we should probably also include Switzerland who, while neutral, uh, uh, sort of turned their head collectively at different times um, to uh, allow the passage of certain individuals, high-ranking individuals, through Switzerland into Italy and then on, on out. But but yeah, Bormann Borman was in fact the architect of the entire rat-line system. And by rat-line, we mean... Those channels through which money and people were moved—it's—it's uh, it's quite quite astounding, uh, to be honest. That they moved. First of all, they looted most of the banks of Europe, uh, where, uh, particularly France, Belgium, and other countries that the Nazis occupied. They looted the banks to not only cash but gold. And probably not so much silver because silver is bulky and not worth that much in the long run. But it's—but certainly gold had a lot of, uh, had had tremendous value. And so Borman was instrumental in getting these assets out of Italy through railways, trucks, whatever means he could get them aboard ships and submarines. And generally most of that went to Argentina or at least went to South America, South American banks. Now there's some evidence and nothing, this is, not, this is just a statement of business. Some of that probably came to the United States because there were industrialists in this country uh, that uh, were anxious to do business with the Nazis prior to the war. I, I emphasize prior to the war. We have to remember that the Treaty of Versailles set this whole thing up. Uh, they bankrupted Germany. They, uh, they, they nearly took every asset Germany had. And Hitler came to power under that under that the guise of uh, of revitalization. The whole scenario was that we would rebuild a Germany that would become not only a great financial power but a war power. But American industrials like Henry Ford and uh, Joe Kennedy and uh, and uh, Prescott Bush, um, among others, many many others. Uh, wanted to get into uh, into business with with companies like uh, Thyssen. By the way, Thyssen still uh, has a huge presence. T Y S S E N, I think, is they are in the elevator, and you see their trucks all over. We see them here in Wichita. Though. So Thyssen still in business, but Daimler, Daimler Benz, and others um, they they were they were re spooling back up. Let's say
1: and then uh, to jump ahead a little bit after the war the western governments especially britain and the united states and on the other side uh the soviets they were really after german scientists and german technology is that correct they they were they rather than interested in hunting down nazis they were trying to hunt down the scientists and the technology uh, uh, to um well, the, the space program space. Oh, thanks.
2: On. Yeah. Thank, thanks to the Germans. We landed on the moon in 1969. Just yeah. to be blunt about yeah. it. I mean, yeah. Uh, that takes us to a situation in Switzerland, that is is a, an interesting link because under Roosevelt, uh, the um, Office of Strategic Services, the OSS, was formed. And there was a guy named Wild Bill Donovan, William Donovan, who um, was the first head of the OSS which was the precursor to the CIA and he placed a guy in Switzerland as the central figure whose name was Alan Dulles. Alan Dulles the Dulles brothers were East Coast patricians who uh, found their way into the the political circles and John Foster Dulles in fact his brother became uh, Ike Eisenhower's uh, secretary of state but Alan Dulles positioned himself as the uh, as, as, as the emissary in Switzerland, in Zurich. And it's well known, it's, it's no secret that he met with Himmler and he met with other high ranking Nazis, probably Yodel and, and others uh, that uh, were uh, prominent at the time, and then likely was involved in some kind of a negotiation that allowed Nazi te- technical assets. Uh, scientists and even materials and intellectual property to be transferred. Uh, it turns out that the Nazis uh, were not nearly as advanced on the uh, on the atomic bomb as was initially thought, but they were advanced in jet power, uh, rocket power, the V1, and as a result, we got Werner von Braun, who, by the way, has a significant American uh, installation named after him today.
1: What is that?
2: Huntsville, Phil. That's Phil, Alabama, the Von Braun Space Center. That's right. Yeah.
1: <laughs> now, Mace, I've got a, qu- a trivia question for you as, yes. we're, as we're talking about this, some of this post-war stuff before we actually get to what happened to Hitler. Do you recall who would say this frequently when asked what he was drinking? He would say, Martini, shaken, not stood.
0: That would be the one and only Mr. James Bond.
1: That's right, and James Bond's creator right. was Ian Fleming, and Ian Fleming plays a role in some of this.
2: Isn't that correct, Larry? It's absolutely true. He was he was an MI6 uh, operative, and uh, after he retired and left MI6, as when he uh, began the series of Bond novels. But yeah, he was a he was an officer within the British intelligence services during the war and so he he came he came at bond with uh, no little uh, experience by any stretch of the imagination he he was uh, I'm sure he would have liked to have been bond and bond may have uh, been ian fleming's alter ego to some degree <laughs> but it was uh, yeah that's 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 quite true
0: that's really interesting i didn't know that
2: yep
1: well why don't we talk about adolf hitler and uh how he certainly may have uh may have escaped that bunker.
2: Well, as uh, as is explained in Grey Wolf, um, there's a lot of speculation. I think we could start by saying things that we absolutely know are true. I mean, with without any reservation, when we know that there were large uh, European communities in South America at the time, the Germans had started migrating and the Italians had started migrating as early as the late 1800s. And uh, so there there were large enclaves of Europeans there already. We know that the fascists had established themselves in a number of South American governments. And uh, those uh, fascist regimes had Nazi sympathies. We know for a fact that a number of high-level Nazis escaped Mengele. We've already talked about him a little bit. Uh, Klaus Barbie. The uh, the butcher of Lyon, who uh, <laughs> went to work for the United States government, by the way, uh, and was ultimately tried by the French and died in prison in 1995. Um, but uh, so he he lasted quite some time. Uh, of course, the ever infamous Adolf Eichmann, who uh, was is often credited with being the architect of the Holocaust, although. He really fulfilled the Holocaust. It was a guy named uh, Reinhard Heydrich, who was uh, a rising star in the Nazi party that conceived of the final solution at the Wabunsi conference. Uh, But he was assassinated by the Czechs in 1942. And that's when uh, when Himmler and Eichmann more or less took over that role. Eichmann escaped. Of course, there was a film done a while back, and I'm sorry, the name escapes me of the film. But there was a film done a while back starring starring Sir Ben Kingsley as Eichmann and his extraction by the Mossad from uh, uh, Buenos Aires and taken to uh, taken to uh, Israel for a swift trial and a hasty execution. Yes,
1: Mossad, of course, is the uh, the Israeli equivalent yes. of the CIA. Correct? Mossad
2: is probably the CIA on steroids. Yes, so. <laughs> yeah. yes. Um, But uh, anyway, uh, that's uh, so those are those are facts we know. Well, um, so there
1: were there was a large German community in in several South American countries, as you said, that um, may have been receptive to welcoming or at least uh, providing a place for for some of the for some of the Nazis after the war.
2: Yeah, it was it it was it was definitely the the environment was there. Let's say that, and several things happened. First of all, um, and without going into great detail, because um, uh, Williams and Dunstan go into this in in the book, but there is every there is there is circumstantial evidence that Hitler and Eva Braun were replaced by uh, by doppelgangers, by doubles, even the dog was replaced by uh, by a double. And uh, it was the doubles who were actually uh, more or less executed. The other thing we know is that there were no eyewitnesses to the suicides. Uh, it was done behind closed doors. So the, the, the theory goes that uh, they escaped through tunnels, which there were tunnels and probably are to this day, tunnels under the Reich Chancellery and the city of Berlin. And they ended up, at uh, they came out at a uh, the main the main uh, uh, thoroughfare and I can't I should have looked up the name but I didn't anyways at the Brandenburg Gate that was that doubled as an uh, aircraft landing strip and uh, there they were met by a couple of pilots and uh, some pilots and I have the oh I have names here somewhere I've got oh here they are this is interesting because Hitler's personal pilot was a guy named Hans Bauer. And it doesn't appear that he was directly involved in this the extraction, but uh, there were two there were two pilots, uh Hanna uh, Reich, and uh, uh, oh, I say Ritter von Grine, who evidently came in in a small aircraft of some kind. Hitler and Eva and the dog got on board and flew them out, and they flew over just a short ways to a a, a larger airfield beyond the Brandenburg Gate. There, they were picked up by um, Captain Peter Baumgart, who was flying a Yonkers 52, which was kind of a medium-sized transport, capable of a good long-range, a tri-motor. You know, you've seen the ones with engines on the wing and this odd thing on the nose out there. It was a tri-motor. And then the story goes that he flew them out of Berlin to northern Denmark and then back down through a carefully planned route in Europe into Spain, where they were taken on down to the Canary Islands and they're boarded uh, some of the rat line submarines and spent probably anywhere from six to eight weeks at sea now Hitler was not good not in good shape at this time he was he was ill and also it's been said and Gerard speaks of this, that uh, Ava was now pregnant with her second child. And so that six weeks at sea could not have been pleasant. Uh, but under any circumstance, we do know for a fact again, that there, the Nazis had installations in on the coast of Spain and Portugal, and they also had installations at the Canary Islands for uh, servicing uh, submarines and other ships. So that's that's essentially how they ended up on the coast of Argentina, just to the south, uh, the southeast of Buenos Aires, and uh, disembarked there. Moved inland.
1: Were there were there any crew members on the submarine or the aircraft who who later confirmed that they saw Hitler or Eva Braun? There were there,
2: were there were some there were some reported. Uh, sightings and I, there was one particular individual and I can't, I don't have his name in front of me, but he was, uh, supposedly had a picture taken <laughs> with de Fuhrer, uh, after, after, uh, landing Hitler sightings, uh, were very common, uh, much like Elvis.
0: <laughs> was it, uh, Philip Citro- Citrone
2: Philip Citrone was the individual. You are absolutely correct, Macy. Good call. Who, uh who yeah who had the, had the found the picture but there are other pictures there are other photographs and as as uh, Gerard and his crew uh, the the uh, history channel crew went through South America they talked to a number of individuals uh, who now Gerard has said publicly that they took some dramatic license with the series and understandably because History Channel is not about telling history, it's about selling advertising. And so uh, they may well have fudged the story a little, but uh, under any circumstance, the basic facts are there. And Hitler ultimately had numerous friends there. He and Ava had numerous friends there. and uh, they ended up eventually there through a series of uh, uh, through a series of moves. At uh, an interior lake at the foot of the Andes, the the, the Argentinian foothills of the Andes, and an estate called Inalco, which for some reason is uh, strangely designed after Albert Speer's visions, who Speer was Hitler's primary architect, and Inalco uh, still exists today. You can go on you can go on uh, Google Earth find it. Uh, it's there. That's where he lived out a good portion of his life.
1: Was, was there a plan to establish a Fourth Reich in, in South America? Or at this point, was Hitler just a broken man who
2: wanted to avoid um, the gallows? Yeah, you know, the The answer to that is yes. Yes. Uh, <laughs> There, uh, there was a plan, and Borman had the plan in place. He had moved all these assets, and he actually didn't come to uh, uh, South America, so the story goes, until about 1948, 47, 48. And there he met with Peron, and he had moved a lot of Nazi treasure into South America, and, and Peron had helped him more or less launder that money for a mere fee of 75%.
1: I, I was going to say, I'm sure Juan Peron uh, did not do this for no, free. Did not
2: do it for free, and but Bormann still came out okay. In fact, I've got a tag in in the book here where Gerard lays out what what Bormann ended up with, and it was not chump change. And so, uh, yeah, they uh, the story goes that Bormann was uh, that Bormann was there to set up the Fourth Reich. He saw himself as uh, Hitler's. Uh, as Hitler's successor and Hitler's health continued to deteriorate. And ultimately Eva Braun became uh, disenchanted with life in the woods and supposedly took the two girls, the two daughters and moved back into closer to civilization. That's, that's the story.
1: (laughs) Now, isn't the official story that, uh, that Bormann either was executed or committed suicide himself about early May, 1945, somewhere. In yeah. General. I never
2: got out, never got out of Berlin. He and an, he and associate were, I don't remember whether, I, I think they were killed or maybe he committed suicide, but they were killed and then buried supposedly. And then his remains quote unquote were unearthed in 1972 where he, um, uh, and, through some uh, process of identity, he was supposedly identified. He was evidently living on for quite some time. And I don't know, I don't remember when it's said that he died. Hitler actually, according to Gerard's work and others, Hitler lived until about 1962 when he, uh, when he finally died, a very sick man of natural causes, Parkinson's, among other things. And there were two two people with him. One of them spoke, and one mysteriously, the doctor, a doctor who went by the name of Lehman, I guess it was Lehman, L-E-H-M-A-N, disappeared mysteriously. <laughs> the butler, the servant, was around for a while, and uh, the story concludes: Ava Braun lived until after two thousand, and the daughter may still, if if this is in fact true, the daughter may still be alive. One of the daughters, supposedly. Uh, and Gerard said in one of his podcasts that one of the daughters probably died in a, maybe it, it might've been Uchi, the first daughter, Ursula, who died in a car accident in the, in the mid sixties. Uh, but again, we're talking, uh, some pretty theoretical stuff here. Gerard stands hard by his, by his research. And I don't blame him. I would do the work has been called rubbish. I don't think it is. One of the primary historians was, uh, trevor roper who he disputes and they've had a conflict over theirs and others but uh i think i think there's enough circumstantial evidence here to say something went on that we weren't being told
1: Mm -hmm. now my understanding is that joseph stalin the the soviet leader dictator wasn't convinced Hitler died in the bunker nor was Eisenhower none.
2: nor nor Churchill
1: I none of none of them really right. did right. so my my question is why why not search for him why 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 didn't the Mossad who was so eager to find Eichmann and other criminals did they have a line on Hitler or was everyone just saying we, we don't want to make a a martyr out of this guy for the second time why why not a All out worldwide search for the greatest villain of the 20th century.
2: That's a good question. I don't really, I don't really have a good answer other than there was a lot of there was a lot of classified traffic to uh, FBI and other federal agencies that indicated that there were sightings of, of Hitler. As far as the Mossad goes, who knows what they were up to? I mean, those they run a pretty tight ship, obviously. But one of the things is. The Allies absolutely needed a dead Hitler. They had to have a dead Hitler. If they didn't have a dead Hitler, things could get out of hand and we'd see a resurgence of Nazism, which there was a small time when it was. This current resurgence in the United States is a joke, in my opinion. These guys are just crackpots. The original Nazis, who would find these guys to be posers? Mm -hmm. but. Under any circumstance, the the Allies needed a dead Hitler. And I think this provided it to them. Now, we know that a fragments of a body were taken to Moscow. Uh, some of the remains were ground up and thrown into a river. Uh, DNA testing on the skull fragment that was supposedly Hitler's turned out to be a, a woman under 40. Uh, and has been discredited there is some dental work but again the germans were very meticulous in the doppelgangers and it's speculated that had they made hitler doubles, that even to the extent that hitler's dental work would have been duplicated oh so, wow yeah pretty amazing yeah
0: i that, that was one of my questions was going to be what about the dental work so
2: yeah the, the dental work remains. I mean, as far as I know, it's still in Moscow. I don't know of any changes, but they have not allowed extensive study on it, to my knowledge, and certainly no DNA. But uh, yeah, the, the the whole thing of the, there, there were a number of doppelgangers. In fact, there's a famous picture just at the end of, of the Reich where um, Hitler is shaking hands and greeting Hitler youth. And there's no question that, that that's a double. That's a devil. That was one of his primary devils, and may have been the very devil that died in the bunker.
1: Well, Macy, you've been sitting here rather silent throughout this, almost almost like a juror in a trial. yes So you you have uh, you've heard the official story that mm-hmm. I gave at the beginning. Uh, you've heard Larry's um, thorough recounting of some of the theories. What do you think? Where do you come? I'm down?
0: fascinated by this whole idea of the doubles. Um, I hadn't seen that yet in my research, so I came in fully prepared to say he died when he said he died or when they said he died. Um, but I don't know. I one thing I want to know did they use doubles so that he didn't have to go to like why were they using doubles when Hitler was alive?
2: Well two or three reasons. One is for security, obviously, and a lot of the uh, a lot of the pictures of him in parades. And when he would just come out on the balcony and not speak, we're likely not Hitler. Okay. Uh, and and that's not uncommon. I mean, Stalin, uh, all Mussolini, all these guys. You know, I'm I'm sure that the Cor- the North Korean regimes have had the same the same thing. Mm-hmm. It's the Chinese. It's it's not highly. It's it's not something the Americans have ever embraced as a technique. I don't think. But certainly in the in in fascist and dictatorial regimes, you don't put the big guy out there. Mm-hmm. You know, and so uh, in fact uh, Williams makes the case that that he's he's almost certain that this individual who's in the picture with Hitler youth is definitely Weber, who was one of the devils.
1: Well,
0: in,
2: uh, one of the devils. Uh-huh. And I I emphasize one because there were undoubtedly several.
0: I mean, people clearly fell for these doubles and didn't know that this was not hitler
2: well this is it was not that it was not 2020 2021 when we have all this fancy you know facial recognition stuff the people saw him at a distance uh and and there were people between uh, plastic surgery was a known art it was it wasn't in its infancy either and so there, there was a lot a lot of image to protect and he uh uh, they they ended up took great security measures because there had been remember in 1944 uh, there, were, there was an attempt on his life and it was it was legitimate and it did get severe damage in fact damage that, lived, that stayed with him to the end of his life.
0: What if a double was assassinated? Well, I don't that's
2: know. a good question. So
0: what what would? <laughs> would hitler just act like he died or would he admit that what
2: would happen then yeah wow <laughs> what if a devil was assessed that's a good question i i had never thought about that but i would assume that they would disavow it and probably trot the big guy out just mm-hmm. to say hey here he is you know he's alive don't believe any of this he's alive and well <laughs> and uh you know we've had we, we've had uh Instances in in past, not particularly in the U.S. that I can think of, but times where there have been rumors of somebody's death and it was you know it was not the case.
1: Well, not long ago,
2: uh, uh, North Korea's uh, yeah leader yeah, I mean, was was assumed yeah. to be dead. Kim, and, Kim disappeared and right. and was yeah was assumed dead and rumors about the sister and all this stuff and none of that turned out to be the case. Mm-hmm. You know, so uh, yeah, I mean. You know the the dictating business is not an easy business.
0: <laughs> I'm sure it's not. <laughs>
2: <laughs> got, and uh, and Peron Peron had doubles himself and and of course his wife. You know, remember who 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 Peron's wife was, uh, Eva Duarte, who became known as Evita, mm-hmm. and died very young. She died of cancer at the age of 33 or so. And uh, but she was a, she was a very populist. Leader and and made tours of Europe and and really kind of swept Europe by storm. Mm-hmm. She was the uh, she was the darling of Europe.
0: and There's a musical. Yes, there her. is
2: Andrew Lloyd Webber and uh, when uh, yeah trying to romanticize the vita and Che Guevara. Who <laughs> are, are you? I, <laughs> I'm not sure. That's an easy job. <laughs>
1: Macy, would you like to sing some selections <laughs> yeah. from from Evita? From Argentina? Yeah,
0: unfortunately, I've never seen Evita, but I I knew I know of it. Um, I do know. Oh, I you know I've heard of "Don't Cry for Me, Argentina," yeah. but I don't know it off the top. of I'll, head.
2: I'll give you another interesting little musical side note here. Um, one of my I, I was always a great fan of Leon Redbone, as you know. And Leon was, a, I actually had dinner with him one night. He, he was a very interesting guy. We hosted him here in town at the jazz festival. And uh, very few people knew this, but Leon Redbone was one of the world's leading authorities on the tango. <clears throat> and the tango, of course, is Argentinian. And that would relate to the fashion of the period, the music of the period, and everything we're talking about. Leon was, I think, by birth a Hungarian or a Bulgarian. He had a Middle Eastern or he had a, a Eastern European real name. his stage name was Leon Redbone, but, but he was a very interesting guy. It was, that was just a lovely evening I had with him. And we talked about, we talked about tango and he was, he was one of the leading experts on Argentinian tango. So that would have been, you know, the dance of the social circles at the time that all this was going on. I miss Leon. He's, he passed, we miss him. And, but he was, he was an amazing guy.
1: If you haven't already picked this up, listeners, Larry Pope is a true Renaissance man, (laughs) a student student of history. Uh, He is certainly very involved in the in the in the jazz community here in Wichita. Uh, He taught me a lot about about wine and spirits. So uh, it
2: has been a pleasure with you today oh, now this is this has been great i thank you guys so much for this this has just been amazing
1: now i do want to ask one more question maybe we can all speak to this if the united states or or any other country had definitive proof that Hitler did survive and and did make it to Argentina and and die in nineteen sixty two should that should that be released should should the should the truth be known, or is it better just to uh you
2: know, to to let him well, die on the sofa in that bunker seventy years have passed, and I say unequivocally yes i I, I, I believe that I believe I, as a student of history, and I never use the word scholar or anything I'm, I'm just a guy who reads a lot as a student of history, the truth always should be told. And if there was evidence that came forward and we said, yeah, we found the the old bird and here's his bones and here's the DNA proof and all that. Absolutely. I, I, I have no hesitancy about that at all.
0: Now you see, what do you say? I agree. I think, I think a lot of stuff is hidden from us, uh, in America just from murder cases. I think police don't come forward with everything, which while the case is open, I agree with, but. I don't know. I I have a journalistic view on that, where if you know, we should. I feel like if the truth is out, then we should know. So, what do you think, Dad?
1: I'm gonna I'm gonna make it unanimous. I think transparency in any supposedly free society is important, Absolutely. and um, if 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 it's out there, uh, I think we have a duty. Well, you to know
2: history what? and and to and to six million. Uh, people, to, yes, absolutely, to more than six million people, and uh, as time goes on, and, and I will, I will say that uh, uh, one of the reasons why I said earlier the Allies needed Hitler dead, and they, as we did with Bin Laden, dumped the body at sea. They didn't want a burial place to become a shrine. Even John Wilkes Booth is buried in an unmarked grave he's in the we know for a fact he's in the booth plot in baltimore but his grave is unmarked and so there was a lot of concern that if he if if he was buried or if his death was was known and Well again, thank you so much oh, for this. thank you guys
1: and uh, we we will have Larry back probably next season. We're already talking about uh, one maybe maybe two uh two cases that and uh, a couple of interesting ones, didn't we yes uh, now, mace, I believe you have an announcement about uh, may twenty third is that correct?
0: I do and first I also want to say thank you to Larry. I learned so much. I I didn't know a whole lot about this. I was nervous about this one, but I'm so glad we had Larry and dad because uh, I was learning just as I'm sure a lot of you were. So this was awesome. I Can't wait to have you back. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Mason.
0: On May 23rd, we have our very first live performance at Alibi, a true crime pop-up bar in uh, Kansas City, Missouri, in Westport. The address is 4118 Pennsylvania Avenue. Starts at 8 p.m. We have uh, a chance to win some free merch and our awesome merch designed by Lucy Besh. We will have a lot of fun. We will be discussing Jack the Ripper at this event. Um, and we'll have Tara and Scott will be there who were our guests a few weeks ago and it'll be a lot of fun. So I hope you guys make it out.
1: Yeah, we want to see you there. And and also I do want to congratulate Macy because, uh, next Sunday, May 16th, she will be graduating, uh, finally and officially, uh, with her master's degree from the university of Kansas rock chalk, rock chalk.
0: Rock chalk, I made up for all those those five years at K State, Honda. Huh,
1: <laughs> yeah, you know I, it was tough disowning you for those years, but uh, you did work your way back into my good graces.
2: Well, we have we have a K State grad in our family too. My son Nick, and uh, we're he's okay. He's okay. <laughs>
0: yeah. I'm sure we both turned out okay.
1: <laughs> well, thanks, and uh, thanks, and we hope to see all of you on on May 23rd, and
0: um, and next week. Oh, next week we have a fun guest. We have our editor coming on as a guest for the Zodiac case. Don will be here as well as his friend who has a very close connection to a main suspect of the Zodiac killing. Ooh, so nice. this will be a lot nice. of fun. It will be fun. And we will see you next week. And hopefully in person on May 23rd. Uh, No autographs, please. I'm just kidding. I would love to sign autographs, but, you know, I'm not famous. All right. Have a good week, and we'll see you guys next week.
2: Thank you, guys. Bye-bye.
0: This has been Cocktails of Crime and Fashion. If you're enjoying our show, please leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the show. Join our VIP Facebook group, Cocktails of Crime and Fashion VIP, to discuss cocktails, crime, and fashion, and to watch exclusive video content. Follow us on Instagram at Cocktails of Crime and Fashion. We also have merch. There's a link in the episode notes. Cocktails of Crime and Fashion was written and produced by Mike Norlin and Macy Norlin Burkett. Our editor is Don Bailey at PretendMachine.com. Thank you to Alex Joaquin for composing our theme music and to Kaylee Bitter for designing our cover art.